Hey everybody, what's up? Sagi here. And before you listen to this episode, I just wanted to let you know that the Hacking UI podcast, while we still have a lot of downloads for our podcast, is a legacy podcast, meaning David and I are not recording any more sessions for the specific podcast. So what you can do right now is, first of all, listen to this episode, and second, know that you can find David on thoughtleaders.io, that's his new business, or you can check out my new podcast, which is called The Creativepreneur Show. And you can just go to creativepreneurmagazine.com or creativepreneur.show. So those are the two domains that you would be able to find my show, my new blog, my new community. And I hope uh, to see you there. Also, be sure to follow David Tintner and Sagi Schreiber on Instagram. We're both on Instagram. I'm also on YouTube. So you can check out the YouTube channel if you want to check out YouTube. Enough with my talking. Oh, my God. So anyways, I hope you guys, though, connect with me and David on the different platforms after this episode. All right. Make sure to do so because we have so much new content for you. And enjoy, guys. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Hacking UI podcast, Scaling a Design Team. I'm Sagi Schreiber. And I'm David Tetner. And with us is Noam Liss, product designer with us here at SimilarWeb. Hey guys, great to be back. Great to have you back, Noam. And today we have a very special guest on the episode, Emmett Conley, Design Director of Intercom. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. So, Emmett, we are doing this show because we are looking for the best designs we can find to interview and to learn from. And we certainly think that Intercom has come a long way in, in becoming a thought leader in the field of design and UX. We really appreciate, first of all, all of, that, all of what you do, not only in terms of Intercom as a product, but also for the community, all the writings and spreading out the knowledge, which is amazing. So first of all, props. Very nice of you to say. Thanks. I really enjoy your newsletter. I think it's one of the best newsletters that I get in my mail. We would love to hear about your background. I will keep it short. But like you said, I'm director of product design here at Intercom. Intercom is a four-year-old startup now, maybe four and a half years old. The basic idea of Intercom is that we're trying to invent a fundamentally new way for internet businesses to communicate with their customers in a very personal way. So personally, but at scale. Before Intercom, I joined almost a year and a half ago. I worked at Google for several years. I was a designer there. I worked on search I designed Google Flight Search. I started a side project. Google has these 20% projects. I started one of those, and that was to design and build a smartwatch, which turned into Android Wear. So I worked on that for a couple of years, and that's basically my background. Did you go to design school before that? I did not. I studied art, and before that, I studied humanities. Like many designers, and similar to lots of interesting designers that I tend to meet, I had a very diverse and meandering route to where I am today. That's something that we deal with every day, right? Humans and... <laughs> Right. I mean, in some ways, the human and the personal touch was one part of what attracted me to Intercom in the first place. You know, the basic thinking around what we're trying to do here, from a design point of view, at least, is that a lot of the ways that you communicate with businesses is very mediated, very staid, uh, very formal, and also very frustrating for a customer, right? You have this whole world of do not reply emails and ticket numbers and maybe phone tree systems that you have to work 
your way through. And it's almost, if you think about it from a pure user experience point of view, very user hostile. At the same time, in the consumer space, we have all sorts of interesting new things happening in terms of enabling people to communicate with each other. Lots of new messaging apps, new media types, and, and all sorts of these things being invented. And so... One way of thinking about what we're doing from a design point of view is trying to apply some of that innovative new thinking to communication between a business and their customer. Can you tell us a bit about your team, your product teams, how you, are, you guys are structured in terms of product? Do you work in agile ways or how do you work? Our teams are very product oriented, very product focused. So our teams are actually based around Intercom comes in multiple products that you can buy that are all built on top of one platform. And the background story to how we landed on that is actually kind of interesting. If you've heard of the jobs to be done framework, which is basically a methodology for thinking about what users want to achieve by using your product, the team sat down and looked at Intercom as it existed a couple of years ago and tried to apply this thinking to the product. What are people actually using it for? And came away with multiple different, I guess you could call them use cases. But we quickly realized that because this was how people were thinking about using Intercom, this was basically how we should present it to them as well. So Intercom today is multiple products based around these jobs to be done. Things like supporting your customers, engaging with them over time, acquiring new customers, learning from them through product research. And that's actually how our teams internally, how our product teams are organized as well. So our product teams, a typical product team is basically, say, one engineer, one designer, an engineering lead and a handful of engineers. So relatively small, very agile. And each of those teams basically has ownership of a product and has a lot of autonomy in terms of setting their own roadmap, deciding what they should build. and actually going and, and executing on that. What we've found is once you get the right people into those positions, it's very empowering for those people to have so much ownership. But because they're focusing in a sense on a product and not just on a feature, so someone isn't just thinking like, oh, I own the search box. How do I make the search box better? They're thinking, I own the support. I own how businesses should support their customers and a product to achieve that. Your thinking becomes a lot more broad and, and your ambition can as well and what your design work can encompass can as well. So it's very empowering and we have found leads to much more effective overall approach to design problem solving. I wanted to ask about do the goals in general come from like higher up from management and then each team takes in and finds a problem or a way to solve it? Or does the team itself just decide we want to build this feature, we want to engage better, we want to change something? Yeah, I guess essentially you're maybe asking how do we decide what to build, right? Uh, right. So the jobs to be done framework was really useful in helping us establish what those jobs were, what the problems we wanted to solve were. But yeah, we then needed to figure out, well, how do we decide what to actually build. We have several inputs to our roadmaps here internally in the product team. And we, we actually decided we wanted a very well-defined process by which we would decide, hey, what do we put on our roadmap? What do we actually build? And so we came up with this list of five different inputs that we have that'll help us to decide what to put on our roadmap. And we try to achieve a distinct balance between them. So very, very quickly, the five things. The first one is new ideas we have, new things that we think of. This can be basically... boil down to shit that we think is cool and just want to exist. <laughs> I think that a certain amount of product design 
has to be about invention and has to be about doing things not just for very hard-nosed problem-solving reasons, but also because you're pointing things in a direction that hasn't previously existed or wasn't, wasn't really obvious. So this is where we can really allow our creativity to come into play or just things that we think are interesting. So this kind of takes the form of anything from adding stickers and emoji to business to customer communication, which isn't a super obvious thing that we definitely need, right? right. But it adjusts the flavor of the communication and, and the results of that have been really interesting. Another example of that has been video replies. We added that to our product. Again, not specifically solving a problem, but opening up new avenues of potential use. I'll quickly go through the other four if you guys are interested. The new ideas, I think it makes perfect sense because that's basically the delight, the emotional connection of the, of the people to the brand and giving them something that they enjoy and they can talk about later with others. Right, 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 right. It's as an interesting aside on that. I mean, you know, business software, which I guess historically has been called enterprise software, which immediately conjures up these horrible connotations of extremely poorly designed and bloated feature creep software, but also software that's completely lacking in delight or personality or any sense of culture brought to it on the part of the design team. And so that's something that we're very keen to avoid. You know, again, you can look at the more consumer-oriented apps and you can say like, wow, there's, there's so much creativity on display in a lot of the software that's being produced. And there's no reason that that can't apply in the type of work that we're doing as well. Yeah, I totally agree. It's something that we actually are trying to do more here in Similar Web, I think. Mm-hmm. Right? No, I'm like, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're like pushing hard, from, at least from the design team, to do that. We, we want to definitely add that. I feel that at this point, we don't have the privilege. We don't have enough time maybe to do that, maybe, or it's not like prioritized high enough, the delightment part. But I think we're definitely pushing towards that. And I think that in the, I don't know, next quarter or two, it's definitely going to be part of, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be just a feature for users. It can be just delighting them or connecting them a bit more. I, that, that is where I found having like a framework, like this five point thing that I'm talking about can be really useful because then it allows you to step back ever so slightly and say, well, in theory, we've always said that adding delight or something like that is important to what we want to achieve. But that's the stuff that it's so easy to trim that inessential or seemingly inessential stuff. But adding a lot of that can make the world of difference to how your product feels or the emotional connection that it creates, you know? Totally. Right. Yeah, number two. Number two, (laughs) it feels like we're doing a top five countdown here. Uh, So the number two way that we decide what it is we should design and build is is more hard-nosed. It's uh, we iterate on recently shipped products. So, you know, often what happens and what is very seductive in product design is to build something and get really caught up in the design process of it and then let it go out the door and kind of forget about it because you're more interested in going on and working on the next thing. We really try within the design team to have a sense of curiosity, not just about, you know, how do we solve a problem, but how well, you know, what happened when you put it out into the real world. And that shipping the product and seeing how the world reacts to it is really only the beginning. You know, we talk a lot about the conversation that exists between us and our users, not just literally in using the product and chatting back and forth, although there is that, but their usage provides this really rich stream of feedback to us and I think basically any curious designer is not just interested in creating a solution but also in testing their hypothesis and seeing how it worked so so we try to again devote a certain amount of time to making sure that we go back measuring 
how our designs performed against the initial success criteria that we defined up front and and then changing the design and that can be anything from saying wow that didn't work and pulling a feature which is an essential thing to do if you're going to try and keep your software relatively simple to you know tweaking and iterating or continuing to add something more onto what you do when you're evaluating a feature after it's been built and you said there's one designer usually on a product team right Mm -hmm. So is the designer working with the rest of the team, the developers, product manager, or is the designer then taking that feature and meeting with other designers on different teams to get feedback or both? The one designer per team is a, a bit of a simplification per product team because we have internal product teams as well. But generally speaking, it's true. We also have a great team of researchers of uh, that work. And I think we're pretty unique in the degree to which we value research for the stage that we're at in terms of still being a startup. Our head of products, for what it's worth, used to be a researcher at Google and a designer at Facebook. This is kind of the combined DNA of, of where the company comes from. Our head of research, Shan Townsend, headed up the research on the Google Maps redesign. And so she's leading an awesome team of researchers here who are also embedded on the product teams and help a lot with a bunch of different things from formative research through to you know, validating and doing usability tests on work that is in progress, but also to what you were asking about there, which is how do we measure the success of what we do? They help a lot with that. It, it also comes from the product team. Very briefly, at the beginning of any new project, we'll write up a document which we call an, an intermission. It's basically like our, our kickoff document for this. And we will have success criteria built into that at the very beginning. So it makes it easy. Before we even started designing, we tried to actually define what success looks like. I have a couple of things about that. First of all, you talked about your VP product, um, Paul Adams. Correct. First of all, anyone who doesn't know Paul Adams, I really recommend to follow him on Medium. He writes amazing articles. Now a question about the UX researchers. So you talk like they are not on the product teams themselves? Are they like a unit of their own? No, they're, they're on the product teams. At the moment, we have some researchers who are straddling product teams, as in they split their time 50-50 between two product teams. That's merely a function of scaling. We are hiring researchers, and our end goal is to have one researcher per product team. Do the, the product designers do any research, or how is it divided between them, between the product designer and the researcher? It's, it's basically a collaboration. I mean, it would be silly to ask the researchers to build a wall between those two, two roles and, and really divide up the work and say, you guys can't, can't collaborate. Mm -hmm. to, be, to be honest, in general, in our product teams, we try not to be very prescriptive about roles and really strict about duties and responsibilities. It is obviously good to have people who are specialists and who can take ownership of specific things. But in my experience, if you take a bunch of people that generally think about building product in the same way, they might have different job titles, but there can be a lot of overlap between those roles and especially in how they like bounce ideas off each other. And so a lot of it can come about through collaboration. That goes for, you know, the designers and the researchers, the designers and the PMs, and even the designers and the engineers. It's a good thing, a really good thing in, in our opinion, if you've got a designer who is having input into the roadmap, which might traditionally be like a PM's job, or if you have engineers who are involved at an early stage in the design process, there are just many, many good reasons for doing that. One is you get good ideas. And if these are product-oriented engineers 
and we're fortunate to have many of those here at Intercom, you get great ideas and they know to a certain extent how to think about good design. You get ideas that someone more technical can bring that, you know, maybe someone less technical, like a traditional designer might not bring. Those engineers are very bought into what they're building from the start. And this is why we tend to, you guys mentioned processes like agile or waterfall whatever. I don't think a lot of people would say they follow a waterfall methodology, but a lot of these methodologies do tend to involve points of handoff where you're just basically handing work from one group to another. And again, maybe in some level, this comes back to our ethos and philosophy about making things personal. That's a very impersonal way of working, of collaborating with people, right? Of writing something up and then emailing it to someone and expecting a great product to happen. That's basically the Chinese whispers version of uh, product development, where someone has an idea, gives it to someone else to build, gives it to someone else to launch, gives it to someone else to measure. We're a lot more about collaboration than that. So we tend to optimize very much for face-to-face, working together over things like heavy documentation or even heavy process. So I guess the answer to like, how does that work is it's somewhat ad hoc, to be totally honest, and that works well for us. You know, if you have the right people and you put the right people together and they click, you know, smart people don't need to be overly prescribed how to work. They can figure a lot of that stuff out themselves as a team. Do you have any continuous communication meetings or methods that you can suggest? Maybe they're daily meetings within the team or weekly coffee break or something like that? Sure. So each of our product teams does a stand-up every morning. Pretty straightforward. Uh, They review what they were working on the day before and their plan for the next day. At the end of each week on a Friday afternoon, every team will do a planning meeting where they plan their goals for the following week. On the Monday morning, all of the eng leads for those teams will meet to sync up on what they're planning to do. And on a Friday, and this is kind of crucial for us as well, on a Friday, you demo what you built that week, what you shipped that week week. We ship at an extremely fast pace. We counted because it was the end of the year. Last year, we shipped over 100 distinct things, whether it be substantial features. And I'm not talking about bug fixes or anything like that. We shipped 100 new things. We've got a product changes page on our app and and you can check it out. It's very rewarding at the end of each week, one, to like stand up in front of your colleagues and show them what you built, what you made that week. And two, for everyone to just get a sense of the cadence and what other teams were doing as well. And so there's there's a constant feeling of of momentum, which is really nice. This is a company-wide meeting you're talking about where you're presenting or it's it's just a design-only, product-only, or how does that work? To answer that question, I'll just take a quick side note into how the teams are laid out. We have all product and engineering here in Dublin, where I am. Okay. So the entire product is built from Dublin. We also have an office in San Francisco, which you could in broad terms say runs the company. And so a lot of our marketing, sales, finance, HR, we have a growth team, a brand design team over there. They're all based in SF. So product is built in Dublin. So the meeting I was talking about was Friday, Friday evening, everyone grabs a beer, we go into our big meeting room, and demo to each other. So that's everyone. That's the whole office Yeah, here in Dublin. And SF does the same thing every Friday as well. And then because of the time zone thing, we like swap videos. So we get to catch up on what the other office is doing too. Uh, It's amazing. How many designers are you there? So I joined a little over a year ago. We were four designers. Today we're 10 and we are still growing fast and trying to, to hire the right people all the time. So every morning, all 10 stand up and show what they're going to do? Is that- Sorry, no. Uh, e- 
each product team stands up. So the designer, a PM, and the engineers all stand up and they talk about their work for that day. Uh, what are some of the biggest changes you've you've seen since you guys were four and now you're ten, growing to that size, double more than doubling your team of designers? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's changed a lot and it feels like there have been multiple phases of change, to be honest, even though it's more than doubled, so it's a substantial increase. Things that work at a smaller size don't work anymore. So when you have four people, you can sit around a table and it seems funny, but that almost seems like a crucial scaling metric how many people can fit around a table it's hard for 10 people to i guess even find the time to get together but certainly to fit around a table and have a meaningful conversation you know so what we've had to do is try and introduce a light amount of process that keeps everybody on the same page that allows us all to think the same way to a certain extent when somebody new joins the other team to help them to get up to speed so it's really slowly becoming less ad hoc about how we do things and more structured about how we think about organizing our work. Did you have to come up with this process and do you have it written anywhere? It's a totally ongoing, uh, it's an evolving process. Uh, for the reason, like I said, like I feel like we've gone through a couple of stages of scaling and we will continue to because we are continuing to grow the team. And so we'll have to keep, I don't want to say adding process because it's really not not how we how we think about it. That sounds restrictive and, and the opposite is true. But putting frameworks in place that allow people's thinking to stay aligned, even though we have more and more people working independently, uh, is how I think about it. Um, coming up with a set of design principles is a really good way of doing that. That's one that we have found really important. Other stuff, honestly, is a bit more day to day. It's about like how we organize our time. It's about how we manage to sync up with each other and stay connected, despite the fact that, you know, individuals work on their product teams. I can certainly talk about that a bit. Yeah. I realized we're like, uh, we, I, I'm trying to even remember what number we were on. Uh, we were on number. <laughs> we just finished number two, I guess, and we're. Let me right. let, let me finish that because it's the 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 longest uh, list ever, and uh, <laughs> I'll try and come back to to the question of okay. you know how, how we basically stay aligned as okay. a design team, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'll run quickly through the others. You know, the, another way, so another of the five ways we decide what to do is that we look at what are basically what are our common customer problems. So one of the nice things about using Intercom is we get to talk to our customers using Intercom all the time. It's very meta, but it's cool. And so basically everyone in the company is able to have an ongoing conversation with users of Intercom, with real users of Intercom. Okay. So it, it's amazing for us. It's an amazing channel of product research. It's an amazing motivator to continue to try and build good things because like I've never worked on something where I have such a, such a direct connection to the people that I'm building stuff for. You know, we, yeah. we're able to talk to them all, all the time. So we have a structured process where our research team mostly manages this. They will look at all of our incoming queries, all of our conversations that we're having with our customers, and they'll analyze them to see what are the common problems, what are the most common problems that people are having. And they'll create what we call a customer voice report, a CVR. And that's basically what are our customers asking us for. The simple way of thinking about that might be to say, like, what feature requests do we get? Well, they're, they're the things that we should build. That's a bit of a trap, in our opinion. People, you know, are, are very good at describing to you what problems they have. 
right? I have a problem, but not very good necessarily at designing a solution. That's luckily what we're good at. So we really try and, and get to the core of what their problem is and come up with a good solution. But nevertheless, so that's just a little warning not to just, you know, build features because people ask ask you to do so. Yeah. But we do listen very carefully and try and understand what their problems are and then and then build a, a solution accordingly. You guys write that about that a lot, by the way, on the blog. So uh, yeah, I, I read about that. So right, right, right. In fact, a lot of this stuff, uh, the, you know, all of these inputs to our roadmap as well. Paul Adams has actually written a post about this that probably explains it a bit better than I could as well. But certainly with fewer tangents. Uh, <laughs> I'll try to find it and put it in the show notes. But, yeah. Great, yeah. Cool. <laughs> Just very quickly to round that stuff out, other inputs to our roadmap, we ask ourselves how, how can we improve quality? Every, every piece of software ever written to a certain extent has bugs. And so it's important for us from a quality point of view to build software that feels tight, that feels well made, that doesn't have problems or frustrations built into it. So we spend a bunch of time looking at that, figuring out, you know, the severity and the, the breadth of the problem and deciding to do a bunch of work that fixes that. And then the last input, just to, to round it out, is as we grow, it's interesting, as we grow, so do our customers. And so we try to build features that will also allow our customers to scale. So I guess a good example of this was last year, we didn't really have any concept of teams or groups of people in Intercom. We built a team feature that allowed more people to use Intercom, use the shared inbox in a, in a very clean and structured way that matches how their organization works. So you don't have, for example, sales conversations overlapping with support conversations. That was the fifth principle already. That was five. Yeah, that was five. Let me see if I can remember. So the five were basically new ideas we have, things we'd like to invent, iterating on stuff that we've already shipped, whether, you know, to make it better or to address, uh, you know, the fact that we got things wrong sometimes. Our CVR, which basically is like, what are our customers talking to us about? Quality, how do we make our product of a higher degree of quality, fewer bugs, and then helping our customers to scale, basically helping us to satisfy bigger customers than newer customers. Very cool. Okay, so now we have an understanding of how you guys are coming up with features and what you're doing at the beginning of the process, but I want to talk about deadlines for a second. Who sets deadlines in the organization? Wow, that's a, well, for, for, I guess, to first, first of all, there's an assumption built into the question, ah, which... They, <laughs> that you have uh, deadlines, maybe. Well, uh, <laughs> You know, it, it's funny, deadline is not a word that we uh, tend to use a lot of, although let me talk to you about how we think about building products and timelines. I mentioned design principles. This is not a design principle, but it's a principle of how we run the, the company and run the product team. One thing that we try to do a lot of is not find ourselves in a situation where we have to build some massive thing and spend months on it and have no idea how valid or effective our work is, and then shape it and have to wait and see after we've invented you know, just a ton of time. So one of our principles is to think big, to have big ambitions and big ideas about what we'd like to invent, but then start small. Think big, start small. And so a lot of what we do is to try and break things down to the smallest possible next step that we could design and build and ship so that we can learn if we're going in the right direction. And we, so we always have this like long-term vision of what we want to achieve, but we'll, as much as possible, try to not take three months to actually get there and ship. Instead, we'll try and ship something every week or, or maybe every two weeks, but roughly in that length of time, 
that will allow us to like step towards that and course correct as we go. And it's incredible what a difference that makes because you get into this very tight feedback loop. Like I said, this almost conversation back and forth with your customers to see how did that little step go and to see if you're moving in the right direction. So to the extent to which we have deadlines, our deadlines are extremely like short and actionable. And a lot of the stuff we work on is on the timescale of a week or two. And so we end up not getting into this situation where we're like, oh man, we're in in this four month project and we're you know uh, three weeks behind schedule and we're not going to hit our deadlines because we just we just don't talk in those terms I won't go into it now again Paul has also written a post on the blog you should check out uh, about how we think about timescales we try to think simultaneously in uh, timescales of uh, six weeks six months and six years so six weeks we kind of know exactly what we're going to do over the next six months to a high degree of fidelity Six months, we've got good intentions, we know what we want, but we haven't got it mapped out in detail, and there's room, definitely room to maneuver and change. And then six years is our um, ambitious long-term vision for what we want to achieve, and, and almost our imagining of how the world will have changed as a result of what we've built. Very cool. I, like, I really like that paradigm. I have one last question about those five principles, about the one with the CVR, the mm-hmm. Customer Voice Report. So he said... The research basically is in charge of that, writing this customer voice report. So how do they get it together and how do they ship it in terms of intervals? Once a quarter, it turns into basically a top 10 list that each product team has. So each, again, it's incredibly simple for each product team to internalize something. Hey, here's the top 10 issues that our, your customers have in using your product or ways in which they'd like it to be different. So it's very simple. How do they come up with it? You know, in, Intercom is the answer. <laughs> in short, it's, uh, this may turn into like a little plug for Intercom. One of our product features is Learn, and it allows you to perform product research by asking targeted questions to people in specific scenarios. So it's awesome for basically answering questions that you have yourself about your product. And so many times we find ourselves in a scenario where we're like, gosh, I wonder, you know, is this feature used at all? Or how do people think about it? And we just say, well, let's just send an auto message to a bunch of people that have used it in the past week and fit the following criteria. And within two hours, you might have 50 responses or 50 conversations that you can follow up with. And that's an incredible input. And it reduces or, or removes such a great degree of ambiguity from the product design process. It's, it's really effective. We have a, a great customer support team here. They tag every query. Intercom has a tagging facility. So when someone sends you something, you can tag it with something. It might be feature request or bug or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so the researchers are able to collate all of that data and, and turn it into the customer voice report. So okay. short answer is it's all done through Intercom. First of all, it's like the most well-deserved plug ever. <laughs> so I recently created a usability testing list for us in SimilarWeb using Intercom. I sent mm. a message to active users saying, hey, if you want to get on the usability testing list, just hit the like button and I will follow up with an email with more details. A lot of people click the like button and that's what uh, triggered them into the list. And then I sent them an email with some more details. And, and now to the question... Uh, do you have any tips on how I can use Intercom as, not me, sorry, but how my designers in SimilarWeb can use Intercom in order to communicate better with our clients and maybe even user test? Or how do you do user testing even? 
So we, we certainly do traditional user testing, everything from, you know, observational usability studies, a little bit of eye tracking. So we certainly rely on some of the, I guess you would call it traditional methods. But like I said, the problem or one of the issues for all the things they're good at, one of the issues with that is it's just a heavyweight process, right? You have to get participants, find the right people, weed out the wrong people, schedule some time, maybe pay to rent some eye tracking software, yeah. record videos of everything that happens, edit them down, write a summary, blah, blah, blah. That's massively heavyweight when the answer could be obtained just by asking your existing customers if you can target the question correctly. Possibly repeating what I said previously, we actually believe it's really important for all of us, including our designers, to be talking to our customers all the time. And so everyone is empowered to basically, as you described just there, and I described before, you know, you're idly wondering about something, you need a, a feedback from a suitable group to message those people. And you'll just immediately, this immediate feedback that you get of responses just start to trickle in and you start to learn more about how people are reacting, how people think. Of course, it's a two-way messaging platform. So you have this very casual form of chat and you can ask follow-up questions and everything. So that is the primary way of, of using Intercom. We have a whole bunch of stuff in our docs if you're interested on, on good ways to write messages and good practice in terms of, you know, not asking leading questions that might affect people's responses and so on. But in short, I find it's really great to go from I wonder to I know within minutes, potentially, sometimes, you know. Just the other thing I love about it is we actually have a lot of customers now, so there's some that you would recognize names and faces of, but just generally speaking, to have a, a relationship or a sense of back and forth, I think it creates a great sense of empathy among us as makers, us as product builders for our customers. And I actually think it buys us a lot of empathy from our customers as well, you know. People, I think, have a sense of, who's behind the product. And this is true of anyone using Intercom, you know, so it's not just a faceless app, a faceless product. It's someone who's building something for you to use. I think that motivates so many of us as designers and makers that we want to make stuff for people to use. And, and yet the internet, despite all of its incredible ability to connect, to allow us to get our work out there, still it has this somewhat impersonal barrier to circumvent that and have that direct connection again and, and just chat with people, you know? Of course, it makes total sense. We have a thing here in SimilarWeb where uh, different teams communicate with Intercom, uh, with the customers via Intercom. And in that way, when I communicate with the customers also, uh, different teams tend to get a bit excited. Wait, why are you communicating with the customers? Uh, we shouldn't be bothering them too much with intercom messages. Uh, the marketing team as well are sending all kinds of promotions and such. I, I guess it's just we need to find the right balance. I guess there's, there's no magic tips or are they? <laughs> It's certainly worth having an overview of the messages that you're sending to, to see, you know, to make sure that it's a respectful conversation and not a barrage of messages. Yeah. A, a lot of the time, you know, this is a maybe a design centric answer to your question. A lot of the time we end up using real world metaphors in thinking about how we design our products. So, you know, how would this work if I was 
walking into a store and the shopkeeper or there's a greeter maybe or something like that there what are the great experiences that I've had how has that felt and what are the horrible ones and if someone greets you overly aggressively or or doesn't tend to respect your boundaries or whatever it might be that's not going to work and this is a problem like if you're sending out newsletters right you have a list of people and you're sending the same message out to all of them and you're going to run into that problem that you described there right where people are overloaded with messages it's maybe not relevant to them anything like that and the way it works with intercom is you can very finely target who you're sending the message to so that it's actually highly relevant and i find that combination of relevance and then it being personal you know coming from a a person actually just sets the tone on a completely different level and so it changes the tenor of, of the interaction a little bit thank you very much i have a question kind of regarding scaling your design team you said when you joined i think you were said four designers now you're you're 10 i was wondering if you could just talk about maybe the struggles or things you've run into you know doubling your team if it's how much time you have to give each designer or just the challenges in general how you've seen it change within the organization or your responsibilities it's a really good question. Hiring really talented people is uh, is difficult. We're a very design oriented uh, company. Like I mentioned, um, some of the some of the people who have designed backgrounds actually our co-founders, our CEO and our chief strategy officer are also both designers, which is incredible and just again sets the DNA of the company and the tone of the conversation internally and so on to be very oriented around design. It also means that we have to work hard, like anyone I guess, but it means we have to work hard to find the right people. It's still a relatively, I guess, small design team, certainly in in proportion to our ambitions. It's small. We feel like we're still at the very beginning of the journey that we have set out for ourselves. And so the people that we hire at this point, it's just insanely important that they are the right people effectively because they're going to set in motion everything that happens next. Those people will hire the next round of people. And so if you get things wrong at this stage, there's almost the potential for things to cascade. If you get things really right... There's also the potential for things to cascade, but in a really good way. Uh, And so that's a a big part of how I think about scaling the team. Nuts and bolts of it. A lot of it is around communication. We do things like having, you know, design crits to make sure that we keep in touch a lot with each other and that the designers are sharing work with each other and giving and getting feedback. We'll have like weekly design crits for the entire team. Again, this is part of the the, um, culture that we've kind of developed of optimizing for face-to-face collaboration a lot of the designers tend to grab each other and work together pair up either in getting feedback or like uh, working through a problem and because we're all essentially working on different products that are built on the same communication platform there's quite a degree of overlap or there's quite a degree of um, similarity to the thinking or to the types of problems that we have so there's stuff like that We also use Wake, which is a mock-up sharing tool, so everyone gets to see everybody else's work as they as they create it. So anything screen-based, we we share in that way. We tend to share very, you know, liberally because it's great to get early stage feedback as well. The other big process, uh, and again, it's not not so much a process as a way we think and the way we communicate, is putting together uh, the set of design principles and design. Principles, really, if I could get into that for a moment. Please tell uh, me there are five really of those, just, too. 
there are five. It's going to take me four hours <laughs> to explain them. Uh, no, I don't, I don't need to go through the design principles. In fact, it's more, you know, the design principles are very specific to us, actually. And so I think they're, you know, less universally applicable anyway than the ways you could think about how should we decide what to build. But in short, the design principles are a list of ways for people to think for the entire team, the entire design and product team to kind of get into a scenario where they think as one. Again, this is a function of scaling. Now that you have 10 people and soon more than 10 people working on different but overlapping things, you have this question, how do we make things consistent, both in terms of the UI, but in terms of our approach to problem solving, to building, just to the nature and texture of the solutions that we come up with. And so we have established the set of design principles, which is basically just a list, a list of like things that we think to be true. I believe and we believe that that great products are opinionated in some way. You know, they bring an opinion that that they're not middle of the road. They don't just split the odds. They they decide on a strong opinion and they follow through on that opinion. And that's how you, again, create new things that, you know, push something in a new direction. And so we try and make our principles opinionated also. One of the things that we discovered when we tried to put together this list of principles was that they actually need to be highly opinionated. They can't be a truism. So so a truism is the inverse of a principle, right? Here's an example of a crappy design principle. Your design principle might be, we don't make designs too complex. And everyone could be like, yeah, awesome. That's, that's cool. We don't make our products too complex. Our design's too complex. Let's do that. Let's everyone do that. The problem with that is nobody would argue for the inverse of that principle to be the right. case. Right. No one would say, hey, let's make our designs too complex. So (laughs) so it doesn't really help you in any meaningful way to make a decision when you hit this point of going, should we go left or should we go right? Should we leave this in or should we leave this out? So a, a much better version of that principle might be something like we favor simplicity over power. Right. Because then that's a clear opinionated. That's an opinion that we hold. That's something that we try and represent in all our design work and flip that over, invert it. There's an inverse to that that says, well, you know, it's really important for our tool to be powerful. And even if it adds a little bit of complexity, we want to enable people to do super powerful things with our tool. And so the inverse of that principle is totally valid. So we have a bunch of these rules, things that we can lean on. They're stuck up on the wall. And so when, when we're in maybe, you know, when we're at a whiteboard or we're trying to figure out something that, that's very difficult, we're able to refer back to these things and say, hang on, we've, we've already thought about how in general we want to solve this problem. And so we refer to the principles. So it's really useful. And then you get this nice thing where you've lots of different teams approaching different problems in the same way. That's how you scale design and maintain a sense of coherency about your product without it becoming watered down, without it becoming right. like um, too middle of the road. One small follow-up about that. Do, you, do all your designers sit in one place? Like do you have like a studio or you spread her out I mean, throughout the floor or the building, wherever you guys are? All the product teams sit together. So the, so the uh, product designers sit with their PMs, with the engineers. It's relatively open plan, so it's, it's very easy for, you know, to access each other and so on. But all of the stuff that I mentioned around crits and syncing up and doing whiteboard sessions together and getting feedback and posting our work is all workaround for the fact that we don't sit together. You know, that's always a trade-off, in my opinion, sitting with the people with whom you're building 
and shipping the actual product is the most important thing. And then you still have tons of designers on hand with whom you can bounce ideas and, and get feedback and so on. Can you talk about how you onboard new designers to the team and get them to, as quick as possible, understand the design principles and how you, the, the five principles that you have for building a new product? This, if I'm to be totally honest, this is something that we're actually currently trying to get better at. It's been somewhat ad hoc. And again, a, f- a function of scaling, I think it can can't be for too much longer at all. We do a whole bunch of nice things. Someone will get an intermission in their first week, and that is basically a piece of work that they can immediately get started on. I think one of the worst things from a, a new person's point of view is coming in and being like, wow, there's loads of stuff for me to read and loads of things for me to catch up on. I don't really know what anyone's talking about. And you've just got to try and like take it all in. You're not really directed or result oriented at the beginning. So we avoid that by giving someone a mini project at the beginning. Even our engineers ship code to production in their very first week here. Every engineer does and generally gets up and demos what they did at the end of their very first week, which is, which is another nice touch as well. And the same goes for designers. So in your first week at intercom you will be designing product it's probably something relatively small but we found that the way to really learn and the way to really like get engaged with all of these things is is much more through doing and making than through reading a whole bunch of things and hoping that most of it sinks in just to share what we do over here i don't know if it's good or bad but the last people that came in said it was helpful so we have a google spreadsheet it's kind of like a a to-do list but on a Google spreadsheet of everything that they need to do, also who they should talk to and about what. And they follow that spreadsheet throughout the week. And besides following that spreadsheet, was it shared with their manager and like with the HR people? So it's also like uh, they have this, these meetings which every, with every kind of different team. Uh, here in similar web. And then those teams pretty much give them like the, the scope of what they are doing. And we have one, we call them a mentor that we choose from the company, which walks those people around for the first week, introduces them to everyone, takes them out for lunch, and basically welcomes them into the company in a more subtle way. For me, I think having worked on an onboarding spreadsheet for the new designers, I think that worked pretty well. And I think that the hard part was finding the really the onboarding kind of first task for them to do. I think what you're doing is great. Right now, I find it hard to think of how we can do it over here in terms of really giving them a product to work on. But maybe again, it's a, it's a leap of faith, I guess, that you guys are doing. And it's very nice to, to hear that you're doing that. And it gives me some stuff to think about. Right. People in their first week are certainly given enough support to get through that work with all of the information that they need. That's for sure. It's possible that the ability to come up with something that's small enough is a function of the fact that we generally tend to do that thing that I talked about before anyway, of breaking things down to a nice small next step that you could take. So we're, we're kind of used to doing it. And, and in some sense, like I've kind of built a lot of how we build product with that in mind anyway, so possibly makes it easier. I have a few questions about stuff that you guys talked about before. One is you talked about um, designers sharing their work on Wake, and it's something that I heard uh, Floris Decker from Etsy. He told me that they were doing that at Etsy, uh, sharing works. And then I tried to implement it here with Slack. We opened a Slack channel, and mm-hmm. we, we told all the designers were like, yeah, let's, let's share our designs. And at the beginning, the first few days, or even like the first two weeks, we were kind of like people sharing their stuff. But 
after two weeks, if people turn, they don't share the designs anymore, no? <laughs> um, yeah, I have a design waiting in the design feedback channel for the past three days, and I haven't heard anything from anybody. So <laughs> if anybody's listening to this podcast, give me some feedback. That Slack channel becomes less and less active. And, and yeah, like Noam said, I, I haven't checked the design feedback channel, I guess, in a few days. I, uh, you know, I guess that brings a few things to mind for me. One is that... A lot of this stuff you got to experiment to see what works and what you know what works for one company culture might work for another what works for one team at a certain size doesn't work for the same team at another size so you know I mentioned the wake thing that's something we're doing who knows that might change as we scale as we grow over time and so all of this process stuff is constantly a work in in process if you yeah, will the process is the process exactly yeah yeah you know culturally one thing again I I I think culture is such a, this, this very powerful thing and it's somewhat intangible, but like it drives a lot of what we do when we just, you know, form into groups of people to try and work. One of the things at least a lot of our designers here tend to do is really crave feedback. And so I think like one of the highest forms of support that you can give to your colleagues is to really take the time to look at their work, give them feedback because it's just worth so much to them. And I think, you know, you receive what you give in some sense. So, so maybe there's an element of that. I think giving feedback makes you a much better designer. It's basically practice at looking at something somewhat critically from the outside in. And with enough practice of doing that, you actually get to be able to do it with your own work, which is amazing, right? Because then you can just like do some work, step outside and then say, well, if this was somebody else's design, what would I say about it? And that is, that's a muscle. That ability to do that and if you exercise it enough you get better at it and you can do it on your on your own work as well another thing we're kind of talking about process another addition to our design team recently is that we got what's called a design producer I don't know if you guys have, have come across this role before so we recently hired our first design producer I came across this when I was working in Android and the Android team. And it actually was a role that first popped up in Android and then quickly spread across all of, of Google because a design producer is essentially somebody who helps the design team to get organized, to stay on track, to maximize their impact for the work that they're doing. And a lot of that is around improving and evolving processes. And so I think that, you know, if you do have a scenario like that where you're like, yeah, well, we set up a Slack channel, but like it kind of withered on the vine or whatever, that stuff happens. Not everything that you try to impose, again, on a culture, the culture almost by definition is not something that you can in a top-down way, apply rules to or form or shape. What yeah. you've got to do is you can provide inputs to it and then you see what happens as a result of those inputs. Yeah. So the design producer is really interesting. A whole bunch of Valley companies that I'm aware of have now adopted this idea. And I think it's, an, it's a somewhat evolving role. But again, it's, it's someone who can look at the dynamics of this somewhat complex team of people who are working on different projects and products and they're all interlocking and so on and try to really untangle it, make sense of it and put some pathways in place for the designers that make their work a lot easier, a lot smoother. In retrospect, looking at a whole bunch of people who already have their plates full with a lot of other stuff that they need to do, expecting that to just self-organize is possibly even a tiny bit bit naive, you know? So it's very helpful to have that. And that's something that we've started to, to experiment with and already is going really well. Okay. 
Great, great. Um, so we got five minutes left for the show. And I have two more questions for you. I hope we can get them all in five minutes. <laughs> um, the first one is, how did you come up with the design principles? Did you come up as a group, like have some sessions about it with all of the designers or how? That, that's a good question. We wondered about this ourselves. How should we do this? Again, I think it's one of those things that if one person sat down and tried to write it and like impose their will on everybody, it, it wouldn't stick, right? Of course. Uh, so the way we did it was Des Trainer, who's the one of the co-founders and the chief strategy officer, actually interviewed me and interviewed Paul Adams separately and just asked us a whole bunch of probing questions about design, about how we think about design, about how uh, things in the team work, how do things go well, when do things go wrong, and so on. And as a result of almost like independently interviewing us, was very quickly able to extract the common themes there. And, you know, he, he did a really good job in interviewing us and trying to push us towards being opinionated uh, about our answers. Mm -hmm. And that was where the basic... outline of the list came from mm -hmm. and at that point we, we were able to get all of the designers involved and they were able to provide feedback on on all of the principles again a super important part of the process in order for them to feel ownership and like they had buy-in and like this was something that they believed in as well so so yeah the initial list was 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 by interviewing uh, myself and Paul separately and then we formed that into something that that evolved over the course of time with input from the designers and that again again not none of this is set in stone these will change over time these will get added to and subtracted from uh, as we as we scale as we change our minds about stuff as we adapt but uh, at any given moment in time they're super useful yeah okay and all of those are hanging up on the wall right okay which brings me to my last question I read an article on the intercom blog once about how you guys are doing the process of of working on a new feature and one of the things that were written is that you guys discuss the pain points and the jobs to be done you write those and print them out and then those are like on the wall uh, throughout the whole work on a feature do you still mm -hmm. do that and what can you tell us about that Yeah, that, that's actually the intermission document that I talked about earlier. So that's the document that um, uh, often the PM and designer will collaborate on writing this at the very beginning, looking at the, you know, the problem space through the lens of the jobs to be done framework. And, and it's basically one page long and we work really hard to not make it longer than one page. So it's not this insanely long like document thing. that you know is a struggle to read yeah. and it will outline just a couple of really basic things it'll outline exactly what the problem is just the problem not the solution just the problem yeah. so uh, you know one of, one of the things that we have found is if you find yourself uh, struggling with maybe one of the later stages of design where things aren't quite clicking and you're not sure why it's often useful to like look back a level and back a level and back a level and the very beginning level the very start of any design project is actually the problem that you're trying to solve and it's so much more useful if you're really clear and explicit up front about the problem and everyone agrees on a simple straightforward short definition of the problem because it just means that everyone is starting from the exact same point and then we go from there and you know we'll talk a little bit about um, why 
we're solving the problem and why it's important to us. That's also where we try to define what success looks like to us. Mm -hmm. So from the very beginning, before we've even come up with a solution, before we've even started sketching ideas, anything like that, we're talking about, you know, here's what the problem is precisely and here's what will have changed as a result of us solving it. Mm -hmm. You can say no, but is there any way that maybe you can share with us that we can put in the show notes one of those like specific uh, um, jobs to be done documents of one of your even older features that we can get this kind of like inspiration from for what we're doing? Um, I'm pretty sure actually that is on the blog already. I'll send you a link okay. to it, which is in the post uh, that, that Paul wrote about how, how our product team runs. Okay. Uh, there's a whole sec section about intermissions and I, I'm pretty sure you can see the template and everything that we fill out there as well. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's also nice about the company is we're allowed to be relatively open and non-secretive, uh, which was very new for me <laughs> coming from where I'd come from. Uh, and it's just super refreshing because it allows you to have like conversations like this one right now that we're having yeah. with people. And like I, I get to learn a lot from, from those conversations as well. So, so thank you very much for having me. <laughs> thank you very much, Ahmed. That was really insightful. That wraps up the fourth episode of the Hacking Our Podcast, Scaling and Design Team. Ahmed, thank you very much for being here with us. Any last shout out? I guess you could, uh, well, you gave the shout out already. You could, you could check, check out the blog. I, I suppose if any designers, uh, if it resonated what I'm talking about, w w like I said, we are hiring, so they can ping me. Uh, no, I don't uh, even think about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been winking away here. I don't know if you noticed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> Hey everybody, what's up? So if you enjoyed this episode, I'm very happy and you're welcome to listen to the rest of the episodes of the Hacking UI podcast. I just want to let you know that this is a legacy podcast, meaning David and I are no longer creating new episodes for this specific podcast. David and I are working on different businesses now. So I just wanted to let you know that first of all, if you want to catch David, you can check out Thought Leaders and that's what he's working on, thoughtleaders.io. And if you want to check out what I'm working on, I have a new podcast. It's called Creativepreneur, the Creativepreneur Show with Sagi Schreiber. And you would be able to find that on iTunes and any podcast app. And I would invite you to come and listen. And that's where I interview people that have built a lifestyle business out of their skills and passions. It's amazing. I interview so many different people that have amazing stories and will help you with your business, will help you with your skills, taking your skills to the next level and achieving higher goals. So if you're interested in that, I'm there, The Creativepreneur Show, and you can check it out also on YouTube. And you can also just go to creativepreneurmagazine.com or creativepreneur.show. I hope to see you around.